The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God of mercy, God of grace, we thank you so much for Advent. And that we are, as Father George speaks about, we have simultaneous seasons. We have the shopping season, the pre-Christmas, really secular season. And then we have our season in our hearts of preparation to receive you, to remember your coming and to anticipate your coming again. And so we just take this moment to think about, especially your first coming, uh, with this author, with his art, with his words, and we ask God that you would open our hearts uh, to your truth. We ask this for your name's sake, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, so there are 25 readings, and I've said each week I'm going to do, just pick, and so last week... It was December 3rd, so we did December, we did readings 1, 2, and 3. But this week, we're not going to get 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. I'm just going to pick 3, and I have picked reading 5, 6, and 10. Now, you can read them in order, but you don't have to. And if you're not familiar with this, it's a little bit earthy. Um, it's an it's a artist, a fellow named Scott Erickson. Uh, he has young children, or he did when he wrote it, which is, he probably still does. He didn't write it, write it too long ago. And, um, and he talks a lot about sort of the reality of pregnant Mary. And, um, and we'll talk a little bit about that today. I, I am um, not quite as brave as he is. But uh, I think he has some really wonderful things to say. And it's really helped me, I think, reframe uh, some things uh, as well. So... Uh, the, the, what he always starts with is a piece of art that he, that he has done. Uh, last week we saw that he had sort of copied another piece of art, um, but, uh, and we showed the original. Uh, I, none of these do I, am I aware that he has taken it from anyone else. So, uh, we have at chapter 5, which is page 41, the chapter is called Given. And the, um, the verse that he uses is from Isaiah, six, not Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and you will be familiar with this verse. For to us a child is born, for to us a son is given. And I would like for you to take a look at the piece of art and tell me what you see. Yes, see an embryo, yeah? You see the Trinity in the candle that is handing it off. And the world's wick is not quite there yet to the flame. It's, a, it's the implication. It's like, you know, when we do, um, we sing Silent Night at Christmas Eve and we pass the flame off from one candle to the next and it lights up the whole room uh, from one candle. It is uh, just like that. The, and you have, you're right, right from the heart of the Trinity, right from the very center of the Trinity comes uh, the light of the world, the, in, in, in embryo, handing it off to, and then he just, art, you know, artfully and elegantly, I think, puts the, uh, the map of the, of the globe on the top of the other candle, who is to receive it. So it's, um, he, uh, what's, what's the most famous Bible verse? John 3.16, which says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He could have used that verse, right? That would, maybe that would have been better. I'll write him and tell him. Um, the, um, 
Anything else? What else do you see in this piece of art? Child coming out of the darkness. Okay. And tell me what, help me with that, because I see him coming out of the Trinity, which I wouldn't. No, no. The flame. Oh, flame piercing the darkness into the darkness. The light is shown in the darkness. So he's got, yes, he's got John 1 in there. He's got uh, John 3.16 in there. Oh, fantastic. Good, y'all. Hello. Ready, ready for the big time uh, for art, art uh, critics. All right. So let's turn over. And, and again, if you haven't read this, he's, he's a millennial, and he writes like a millennial. Uh, and sometimes that's charming. And sometimes it's annoying. Um, but I, I like what he, I like what he says, and he's kind of talking about uh, perspectives. Uh, truth, he says, truth is um, perhaps most simply defined as the actual state of the matter, seeing things for the way they are. That's that's in the middle paragraph on page forty-two, and yet perspective has everything to do with the way we perceive truth. Uh, something you, I'm sure you have an experience where you saw something for what it was, and you were sure that you were seeing it the right way, but somebody else saw the exact same thing and saw it differently. If you're married, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> speaking, yeah, speaking for a friend. That's what we hear. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's what, that's what Amy tells me anyway. I always, uh, so, um, and it says it feels really tricky, and, and I, I, I completely agree, um, because, the way we see things feels so true, and it takes an awful lot of humility to be open to hearing another perspective on something that seems so black and white uh, to us. Uh, that wonderful prayer of St. Francis, or that wonderful uh, book by Stephen Covey, um, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, both of them say, seek first to understand rather than to be understood. And I think that is, it requires a lot of humility. That's about perspective. And we're seeing someone else's perspective um, rather than just espousing our own. And, and what he says in the middle of the paragraph at the top of page 43, truth is found when we can lay aside our own preferences and vantages and see everything for the way it is. It is interesting that those who spent time with Jesus consistently described him as being full of truth. That is, having a clear perspective, seeing the real. That is, that Jesus, did not, that what he's, not, he's not talking about their perspective on who Jesus was, but that Jesus himself saw everything exactly as it is. That his perspective is the right one. His perspective is the right one. So, that is, uh, in a sense, what we uh, understand that he is the creator of all things. He's the agent of creation. All things were created through him. Uh, not anything was made that was made. That's John 1. That's the Nicene Creed. We, we hear that. And he says that leads us, in fact, to grace. Now, without looking at the answer, how would you define grace? Unless you already looked at the answer. An undeserved, An undeserved gift. That is a very good answer. Who would like to uh, challenge Go for the steal. Now, who, uh, anything to add to an undeserved gift? An undeserved gift of 
unconditional love. Absolutely. So it's a good undeserved gift. Like sometimes you've got an undeserved gift, and you're like, no thanks, right? But, uh, but um, you can take that back. Uh, but it is an undeserved good gift of unconditional love. In other words, you have not earned it, his love. You have been given his love. And that is the name of this chapter, is given. Um, what I, I try in every sermon that I do, if I tell you that you should do anything, I have already told you what has been done for you. And I, that is my goal uh, in every sermon and every teaching, that everything that we do is drenched in God's grace. How do you experience grace? What comes to mind when I, when I ask you, how do you experience grace in your own life? Salvation and redemption. Salvation and redemption, yes. I, and I'm, I'm actually, um, I'm not asking what's the how-to, I'm asking... In your own life, how do you experience grace? Yes, Rick, give me an example. Well, instead of keeping God forefront in my mind 24 hours a day, seven days a week, those times when I don't, that I'm still in His presence. I'm still, I'm still able to breathe. I'm still able to walk. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's the grace. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Even when you're not thinking about Him, He's thinking about you, right? And you, you're in His, I think, I think it was... Um, Carl Jung, although I'm, you know, I don't know about a lot about his theology, but he said, "Bidden or not bidden, God is present." You know, which I think is a profound statement. And also yes, Carol. C.S. Lewis, the surprised by joy. Yes. That's immediately I think of that. Surprised by joy. Yeah. yeah. There's that wonderful uh, redemptive. Rick, would you mind turning on the, uh, the temperature? Um, there's that wonderful story in uh, the horse and his boy that seen uh, by C.S. Lewis, one of the Chronicles of Narnia where the boy is riding on horseback in the dark, and he doesn't know where he's going, and all of a sudden, and he's afraid, and all of a sudden he realizes he's not alone, and he's terrified, because it seems he can't understand, he doesn't know what's there, but he knows it's big, and he's afraid that it's going to have teeth and claws, right? And it's just padding along beside him. Turns out, as the light begins to dawn, it does have teeth and claws, it's a lion. And finally, the lion, he's... Finally, he works up the courage to speak to the lion, and the lion says, I've been here all along, and I've just been waiting for you to ask. And that's really, that's really it. And, and, of course, the lion is, is Aslan, who is the Jesus figure in the Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah, Richard. For, for myself. From your, truth from your perspective. Go. Not, not truth, but my realization uh-huh. is, is there's the instantaneous realization of grace and then there is the learning grace the instantaneous is an epiphany yes when it it opens up and you know it's God then there's the time when something has happened and you work into it and you understand it's God that's right I think there's a big difference so I love that distinction so there is there's this sort of momentary, instantaneous uh, realization that God is present, that He loves us, we, haven't, we don't deserve it. And then there's the learning to work out the realization of that in all of your life. The, the other side of that coin is we also have to learn to be givers of grace as recipients. And because that doesn't come e- easily or naturally either, right? So that's really good. But grace has been given. Forgiveness has been given. And out of the bottomless well of, our gra- of that grace and forgiveness and, and everlasting love, we give um, 
we, we are givers of that. And that is, that's a learning, that's going to take, that takes our whole life long to learn that. That same paragraph, or, or page 44, middle of the paragraph, to see Jesus as full of grace. Oh, no. I want, actually, I wanted to read the line at the top of the page. Uh, what I've come to understand is that grace is the antidote to the ailment of shame. Shame is an ailment, uh, a, a sickness, you know, so, uh, something that hurts us. And the antidote to shame is unmerited, unconditional love. Yeah, Amy. This makes me think of, you know, our favorite scene from Les Mis. When the, when the priest, you know, when John Valjean steals the candlesticks and punches the priest in the face. Yeah. And what, what he deserved was for the priest to lock him up. I mean, totally deserved, right? But what the priest does is set, gives them... He tells the police, I'm giving these to him, like to, and he says, you know, with this, I'm going to get it wrong, but he, he says, with this, I've won your soul. Yeah, so, so the police bring Jean Valjean and the, and the silver candlesticks back to the bishop, and the bishop rushes over and says, Jean Valjean, I'm so angry with you because you, you took the candlesticks, but you forgot to take the silverware. <laughs> Remember, I told you, you must take the silverware. And he just... Yes, yeah, that instead of shame. And, and of course he felt, if I've stolen from this sort of man, I feel it all the more, but that's the kind of shame that changes your heart, right? And, and, and that's what we feel. When, when we feel, uh, when you come before the throne of grace and you feel dirty, it's the, kind of, it's the kind of shame that says, I know I'm being cleansed, right? There's one thing to feel dirty and dismissed. There's another thing to feel dirty and loved, and cleansed by that love, right? And that's that's the love of the baby in the manger. That's the love of the Savior on the cross. Um, so he says, to see Jesus as full of grace means there wasn't any perfection checklist that was uh, met to deserve his presence. I'm going back to shame. Yes. I think it's a necessary thing. It's, it's, if you don't feel shame when you do something shameful, that's bad. Well, I agree, yes. I, it, so... Jim, Jim makes the point that shame can be a gift because we need to feel shame when we've done something that is shameful. That's that sort of conscience prick. And when someone feels shameless, then, then they don't have the thing that drives them to their need of a savior. Yeah, uh, and, and so there's, I, I, I feel like I also spent a lot of time convincing you, uh, and not convincing, but reminding us all that we're, that we're sinners. I mean, that's, that seems, oh, I don't want to hear that we're sinners, but we are. And it's not anything really to be ashamed of except to name it and then drive us to the Savior, right? Because he didn't come for anybody except for sinners. So it's a pretty good thing that we are, right? I mean, no, he came I for us. I agree that shame is the sickness. I think sin is the sickness. Well, sin is the sickness. Maybe shame is the, is the symptom. You know, we, but we want, we, I think we can agree, we want to get away from shame. We don't want to sit in it or, or stay in it. Well, as David. Uh, yeah. Psalms, yes. Don't let me experience shame. That, that's right. Wash, wash me. You know, renew a right spirit in me. That's what shame does. I, in the presence of unconditional love, shame says, "Renew a right spirit within me." Uh, very good. All right. So Jesus, to see Jesus full of grace means there wasn't any perfection checklist that we had to meet in order to deserve His presence. 
his arrival stands against the idea that if you do right, you get access to his presence. Now, the good people go to heaven, the bad people go to hell. His arrival stands against that idea. His presence was freely given, like we've said. He never withheld it. Grace is presence, not withheld. I just love that. I think it's so beautiful. Then he talks about the genealogy a little bit, and, I, and I, there's some fascinating stuff uh, in the genealogy. And I just, uh, I'm just going to read it at the bottom of, uh, gosh, there's so much in this chapter. Hmm. All right, so I'm going to skip that part and go to top of page 48. The unseen Yahweh comes to us full of grace and truth. So grace is not the uh, sort of antidote to truth. Truth is important. He is the author of truth. He is the very definition of truth. And yet, in the face of truth, we need grace. Yahweh comes to us full of grace and truth. Come, in, come seeing you in all your real right now just as you are. Grace and truth is the invitation to be seen, and in that seeing, to receive the gift of presence not withheld. It is this loving presence, given to who we are right now, that will truly heal us. See, if you, if you, ha if you have only grace, then what you have is, is license, right? You have just willy-nilly do whatever you want. And we'll, you know, you can do whatever you want because we're going to love you anyway. And, and, and that is, I mean, if you were a parent like that, that's, that's irresponsible. I mean, there are parents like that. Um, but but it's, it doesn't help our child understand boundaries. If you're only truth, that doesn't help either because it's, it's hard. Truth is hard. And it says, if you have not met the standard, then you're out. And what is amazing about Jesus and about our incredible God, and it always blows me away because God could have been any way he wanted to be. He could have been only truth. But he's grace and truth. And that is what we receive in Christmas. That's what, for those of us who believe in Christ, that's what we will receive on the last day when he comes again. All right. Wow. That's a lot. It'll be enough right there. But it's not. Let's move on. Any other comments right before we get to unease? So probably when, most times when your rector says, okay, let's move into the chapter called unease. That's uh, um, chapter 6, page 51. On page 50, there's uh, a piece of art. What do you see? A distressed woman. A distressed woman, yes. Say worry. Worry? But there's a circle of yeah. light. A circle of light. Yeah, so we know who this woman is. Yeah? What else? Faced away from the light right now. Right. She's faced, and that's interesting. She's faced away from the light, but this is also what we normally see of in artists' renderings of, of saints, you know, the, the light hovering over their head. It's sort of halo ish, but it's, uh, you know, just sort of a, a, a light. I, I think it, again, he's trying to capture the difficulty of what was asked not asked, really commanded, uh, of Mary, given to Mary. And Mary's, uh, we get this line right before the Magnificat, let it be to me according to your word. Uh, it, actually, not right before the Magnificat. This is in the Annunciation, when Gabriel comes and says, let it be to me. Right, he says to her, you're going to have a child, 
And she says, how will this be since I am a virgin? And he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And she sees her new life in front of her that is completely different than the life she had planned for herself. Uh, the dream that she had for herself. And rather than say, stamping her foot and saying, that's not fair, she, which she could, and mm, she would not be the only 14-year-old girl, year old girl to say, do that. Um, she says, let it be to me according to your word. And in fact, um, for all of us, who are much older than she was, uh, it's still very hard, isn't it? To say, let it be to me according to your word. So, um, he starts out saying that uh, there was a moment when the presence of God was felt as the unease of morning sickness. And I read that and I thought, well, I'm not doing this chapter. Um, <laughs> but what I, I think he's getting to, and he, and he really, and I'm not going to get into the details of what he says. I, I commend it to you. Um, he says that morning sickness is actually probably the result of something very good. But it's something very, it feels very bad. And all of us can look at points in our life that felt very bad, that God was using for something very good. And, um, and I think that that is uh, really uh, helpful. And um, as we think about the, the questions that we have for God when we're going through difficulty, when we're uneasy with the life that he has given to us, um, page 53, there's a little paragraph that says the process of growth is always uneasy because growth never comes through ease. It comes through the stretching and expanding of one's own capacity to push on ahead. You think about how much of your life is spent uh, in uh, maybe professionally or socially or whatever, trying to create ease for ourselves. And yet if your life was only ease, we would never grow. We would never get better. We would never stretch. We'd never uh, really have to need to know God if our life was only ease. It's what we want, but it is not what we need. And it's what I want. I mean, I'm not up here saying it's when, I, when I say it's not what we need and I'm better and I love unease. You know, I love suffering. Um, I think it's good to make yourself do hard things, but I mean like running up hills. I mean, that's not, um, I don't mean going through difficult, you know, cancer or difficult things, but sometimes, um, I mean, like I, you know that I've been through a difficult season on, with diocesan work, and I've, tr I've tried to frame it in my mind as the best thing that ever happened to me, because what else would have been given to me in order to stretch my leadership and increase my faith? Like that, that situation with the Episcopal stuff. But I would never want it again, and I'm so glad that season's over. And so, but I do, I mean, if it's over and I don't learn anything from it, then what a wasted season, right? So unease is, uh, is a gift to us. And certainly Mary felt unease. Now he starts with morning sickness, but he gets into the, um, into the idea that she was, her life was completely changed from, I mean, she, she thought she was going to just be a carpenter's wife and, and just a regular sort of peasant class woman, run, you know, raise a bunch of kids and, you know, sit on a bunch of chairs and they would become carpenters too, you know, like that's just, um, and all of a sudden the angel shows up and says, no, no, I've got something very different for you. 
when has God done something in a similar vein for you? Not, hey, you're going to carry the Savior of the world in your belly, but when have you seen something hard actually be a great gift and a great blessing? Just a, just a, not the whole story, just a little snippet. Anybody? Yeah, Connie. Maybe 20, a little over 20 years ago, we were at another church, and there was a big falling out, and I was told, we were told, or a statement was made that if we didn't like it here, there was a church on every corner, and so um, the next day, Jim and I made the decision we're going to find another church. Yep. And I never thought I'd stop crying because it was so painful. My friend said that to me. Mm. And um, it, it just, it was such a painful time. And now, looking back, being here, I don't think my faith would have grown as it has had we stayed. Yeah. And, um, so many other things, but it was it was terrible, but it was good. Well, nothing hurts like church hurt. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but their loss, our gain. Yeah, good. So glad. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, Rick. Getting fired. Yeah. yeah. Getting fired. Yeah. yeah. Worst thing, best thing, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's it. yeah. And human, it comes with shame, right? It comes with some some have to swallow your pride a little bit on that, for sure. And yet. New opportunities. Thank you. Page 55, he, he writes, the difficulty in letting God grow you, and that she like, you're not growing. It's not that you're in charge of this at all. He's growing you. Like, you're the seed. He's the one watering. You just do what you're made to do. The difficulty in letting God grow you is the trust that is asked of you when you're not quite clear what the outcome looks like. And he gives some sort of millennial example of how, um, you know, like if you're going to eat pizza you, uh, or you're going to give up pizza, you know what the outcome of that ought to look like, right? You, that's something you can control and you think you know what the outcome is going to be. Um, but when you say to the giver of your life, I want my life to be meaningful. I want to serve you with my life. May it be so according to what you desire. You have no idea what secret cosmic strategies have been put into play to answer that request. And what we think, what, when we say that, let it be to me according to you, we think the heavens are going to open up and the angels are going to sing and we're, we're so proud of you. You made this. This is going to be great. No, you get fired, right? Or you get cancer. Or you get, you know, something, you, you're, all of a sudden the, the bank calls the loan and you don't have the money. And, you know, whatever it is. That's why I always tell people, like, don't pray for patience because God doesn't give you patience. He gives you a situation that requires patience, right? It is, I mean, you should, it's fine. Pray for patience. But um, you have no idea what secret cosmic strategies have been put into play to answer that request. And that is scary and wonderful. Page 56, starting in the middle. Just like morning sickness, the unease is a strategy of the soul to protect you from doing all the things as usual that could harm this new life being grown in you. It's for love that you have been moved from what is known to what is unknown. It is for love that you have been moved from your comfortable perch so you can be enlarged by a different perspective. It is for love 
that you have been broken open so a larger capacity of faith, hope, and love can be built inside of you. For love is because you are loved. It may be that the divine presence you've been looking for is found, is to be found uh, in your present unease. And then he gives, I think, three very profound questions, and we'll finish this chapter with that. What is the conversation I can have only by being in this situation? Like somebody, I, I mean, probably anybody can ask that question, but a Christian ought to ask that question. God is sovereign over my life. I don't like what's happening. But what is the conversation I can have with God, and maybe with others, but certainly with God, that I can only have by being in this situation? What parts of my life have I been able to uncover only by finding myself right here? What unexpected place might God want, me, want to meet me during this uneasy time that I'm experiencing? I, I think we can ask that. Those, I think if you just held on to those questions, I mean, it's asking something to the effect of, what are you doing, God? Not, what are you doing, God? But like, what is it that you're up to that I need to get on board with? And, um, and how can I submit? Let it be to me according to your word. I don't know what you're going through right now. I feel like the, you know, the Mary, uh, I don't know what it is right now that's not just right, but that's why he came, is what, what Mary says in, in our live nativity play. Uh, that's why he came. So if God is sovereign and you are suffering, then there must be a reason. And it, all things work to the good of those who love the Lord. That is easy to say and hard to live through. But it is good. Questions or comments? I like the part here where it said, we, regarding our trust, it's like God perhaps has gotten distracted with more pressing global concerns and left us to fend for ourselves. That, we think that all the time, don't we? God has gotten distracted with more pressing global concerns. Wow, gosh. I mean, we're praying about Israel, so that's just where all his focus is. And he, he doesn't need to be messing with me and my, you know, uh, little money in the bank or whatever it is. I mean, he's, he's uh, that is what is so amazing about our God. Is that there are pressing global concerns, and you have his full attention and so does everybody else. I don't have that kind of attention span. Thank God. What else? Yes, Mary. It might be a little cheesy, but it reminds me of that scene in It's a Wonderful Life where Clarence is talking to George and he mentions to him that his brother Harry died and all the men on that transport that Harry's name died. And it's all because George was where he was and saved his brother. And, and it's like that one little thing that leads off this cosmic chain. Right. And we don't get it. Yeah. But you just have to trust. I mean, we just we have a God that sees beyond the horizon. You know, like we all we can see maybe to the horizon on a clear day. Uh, and he sees way, way beyond it. Yeah. So he knows and he can connect the dots where we can't connect the dots. And you gotta be okay with that. And sometimes we just gotta trust that he connects the dots. Not that he's going to show you how the dots connect. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me tell you, I think life with God is a lot harder than life without God. I mean, we want to give our life to Christ and we kind of have this dream that, oh, now, now he's going to take care of everything now. And he had, his, his job is not to make us easy, it's to make us holy. 
And so it's, um, it, there's a lot of sanding off rough edges and that hurts. And sometimes there's a totally breaking open and smashing to dust and then a rebuild. And, uh, and that's life with God. And that's why the Savior came. And that's the promise and that's the unease and that's the great hope. All right. Well, let's. What's that? Hard, but with hope. Oh yeah, it's hope. I mean, it's absolutely what it needs to be. I mean, I wouldn't want anything else. I mean, I would might want it, but I, I, um, you know what I mean. All right. Let's look at uh, chapter ten on page eighty-three. Virgin is the name of this, and I actually really like this piece of art. So tell me what you see in it. Page 83, the, um, Holy Spirit holding the, embryo. the Holy Spirit holding the, the baby in utero, yeah? And that's pretty much it right there. But then, and then you got the eyes of flame. That's pretty cool. That the flame, of course, being the symbol of the Holy Spirit. Well, you can always overread too much into art, but I'm going to throw it out there. Okay. Overread away. Overread away. Yes. Is coming from the throat portion of the word bird, uh-huh. and meaning you're proclaiming, you're actually proclaiming <coughs> the word through speaking and through the. No, I don't think you're overreading at all, and I hadn't seen that at all. So, if Jesus is the Word made flesh, and the umbilical cord is coming straight from the throat of the Holy Spirit, I, I, I that's beautiful, and I, I would, I had not seen that. That's really good, really good. That the Holy Spirit, as the presence of God, is speaking this child into the into existence yeah. as the child, not the child, but the second person of the Trinity spoke the world into existence. I, that's super profound. I love it. Thank you. So we're kind of backing up in the story after um, let it be to me according to your word. But she says, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? Um, Excuse me, I have a question, by the way. Yes, Carol. A theological question. Is it, you know, this is the primary one. Are there other other Gospels that were not included in the Gospels, like, say, Timothy or things like that? Are there other recountings of that? Are there other recountings of the virgin birth? Um, I mean, Luke is the the primary one. I don't think know that there are, and I'm, I certainly don't know the content of the Gnostic Gospels. Richard is saying that there are, are not other accounts. I mean, Matthew accounts it, but from the perspective of Joseph. The story is the same, but it's, it's from... So, the answer really is, is, as I think, is no. There are not other accounts. I don't think Matthew refers to it as a virgin birth. He just warns Joseph to keep his mouth shut. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's what I get out of that. Which is good advice for any husband, really. Um, yeah. Um, so, page, bottom of page 84. Throughout our lives, we will encounter paradox. Two seemingly contradictory truths existing in the same space and time. Like a catch-22, where someone needs something that they... They can only be had by not needing it. 
or the omnipotence paradox, which asks whether an all-powerful being can create a rock too heavy for itself to lift. Now, that was one of my Young Life kids. When I was a Young Life leader and I was in college, he was in high school, he was like, I got him. I've found the loophole. There is no God, because if there was, then he could create a rock too heavy for himself to lift. I was like, you're an idiot. So, um, I don't know if you ever came around on that one. Um, at the heart of the Christ story, this is 80, page 85, at the heart of the Christ story is a mystery. The paradox is Jesus being fully God and fully human. Two seemingly contradictory truths existing in the same space and time. This is the mystery that continues to capture the hearts and minds of millions of pilgrims throughout the world. Yet that mystery was birthed out of another paradoxical mystery, one in which the finite and infinite wove together salvation in the belly of a Middle Eastern young woman. Theologians call this the hypostatic union, fully God, fully man. How do you understand the, the dual nature of Christ? How do you fit that in that little brain of yours? I don't. You don't? Yeah, you just accept it. Okay, that's, that's the fine answer. Somebody has a grasp on it, right? Somebody? Yeah, the guy who said he just accepts. He just accepts. No, I heard him. I heard him. Anybody else? We're actually, this is, this is my Christmas sermon is really going to talk about incarnation. And since y'all are going to be at home watching the Jaguars anyway, I'll just tell you. Um, the, uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, it, it really is. It's, it is amazing. Man, we think about that um, modern song, Mary, did you know? And he tells you that you're baby boy. And he talks about, you know, you hung the star, whatever. I don't know the exact lyrics, but he just you know, put the stars in the sky and he, you know, walked on water. These feet would walk on water. These hands would be the heel and, um, you know, I just think of, of all that, and I've kind of riffed on that over the years in, in Christmas sermons. Um, it is, I think, God's greatest miracle uh, is that he made himself small, that he made himself cellular, uh, that he made himself, without ceasing to be God. There's a, you know, there, and there's a lot, a, hundred, a couple of hundred years of controversy around who exactly is Jesus. That's what the the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Constantinople, all these different uh, or, um, councils had to do with the nature of, of Christ. St. Nicholas is uh, sort of famously, but, but not actually, uh, punched somebody for, um, uh, was it Arius? St. Nicholas punched Arius at the Council of Nicaea because he was said that, that Jesus ceased to be God. Um, and, uh, and apparently... Um, that part gets left out of the children's stories. Uh, but the, um, there's actually, it's unlikely that Nicholas was even at the Council of Nicaea. It's sort of legendary. But um, it is uh, still, nevertheless, it took a long time for them to understand what we say in the Nicene Creed, very God of very God. Uh, that, that he didn't, he was, it's not that he was God and then he ceased to be God and became man. And then when he arose again, he started to be God again. Um, or that he was just, as many people have said, he was just sort of the most divine of all the humans. Like, we all have this divine spark, and he was just the most, uh, had the biggest divine spark. Um, no, that's not true either, that, um, on many levels. But, but it's um, that he was always God, 
and that he was always on earth, always human, and still remains human. That he is seated at the right hand of the Father, but he, he didn't cease to be human. He rose in bodily form, went to ascended to heaven, and is human now, um, and wherever he is. And, and yet is, you know, the Spirit of Christ dwells in us. Um, but it, it, is, it is certainly a mystery. But that union, fully God and fully man, why did, why did the Savior have to be fully God and fully man? Why couldn't he have just made a human that was, uh, had a divine spark or, or something like that? What, why? What is the reason for fully God, fully man? Rick? I always just thought of it as the gap between God and human was so large yep. that the only way to span that was to be in the middle, to be both. Okay. And the gap was so large that he kind of straddled the gap. That's the only way to do it. Yeah. Okay, I can I can go there. What else? If you, if it wasn't God and man at the same time, then uh, he would just be another saint. If he wasn't God and if he wasn't God, then he would just be another saint, right? Right. right. Lots, of Lots of saints. Lots of prophets. Yeah. It's hard to have a relationship with an invisible God. Right. Hard to have a relationship with the invisible God. So there's the gift. There's the giftedness in that. So there's a then the relatability of himself. Yes. Um, I just think that becoming man, he understands. Well, he understands he's God. He does everything. But he really took on our humanness, uh, our feelings. We can't say, God, you don't know how I feel right now. Well, yes, he does because he was here, and he was one of us. And, um, Absolutely. And I have used many times, uh, too many times, um, you know, he knows what it's like to lose a child. The father does. Uh, so there's infinitely, uh, he understands our humanity. And yet, so if he was only God, he could not have tasted death. And if he was only human, he could not have been perfect to redeem us. And so only in the genius of God could he be both. We have a God who is, uh, we talk about it like he's heterodivinity, right? He's, he's one, and he's plural. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is, um, he, he, he certainly is bigger than, than the pronoun he that we have. I don't mean to get correct about that. Um, I just mean that, that he's just bigger than we imagine. And so, uh, and so there's this, there's this, plurality about God, and only God can span both being 200%, but fully God and, and fully human. But if he wasn't both, he couldn't be our Savior. And he couldn't have defeated death. And he couldn't have risen again. And he couldn't offer us eternal life. So, um, all that to say, that when he conceived himself in the womb of this virgin, that he had us on the horizon, uh, and reconcil reconciling us to himself. And there's nowhere else he could have done it. But I love this idea that he, was, he spoke the baby into the womb, in the way, the word of God, as the word of God spoke the world into existence. You and me. All right, friends, we will get through next week. I hope that you'll come. This is a wonderful crowd. I know you're here for the meeting, but I hope you'll come back next week as we finish this up. We'll get through chapter 17. 
But you can take these, and I encourage, I commend them to you. Some people have told me I couldn't. I sat down to read number one, and I couldn't put it down until I finished number twenty-five. And I think that's awesome. So just um, just enjoy it. If you don't have cash uh, today and uh, or ever, that's okay. But we'd we'd love for you to um, pay ten or fifteen dollars for it, and then the um, and uh, or make it up some other way. But um, but yeah, enjoy. Go to church if you hadn't. If you're going, if you're leaving now, and there's runners out there, be nice. They worked hard to get here. All right. You'll probably have the best luck if you turn right out of the uh, parking lot.